much for listening to VOA One The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from The Voice of America. I'm Dan Friedel. And I'm Katie Weaver. This program is aimed at English learners. So we speak slowly and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. On the show today, Gina Bennett brings us Ask a Teacher. We also hear from Jill Robbins and Dan Friedel. And we close the show with an American story. But first... The first person who saw it was working overnight. The worker, a shovel operator, saw something white as he placed a large amount of dirt into the back of a truck. The driver of the truck put the dirt in the road. Another worker operating a bulldozer was ready to flatten it. But the worker stopped for a closer look when he too saw a piece of white. Only then did the mining workers realize they had found something special, a two-meter-long mammoth tusk that had been buried for thousands of years. A mammoth is a kind of animal that lived in ancient times and had very long tusks. The animal went extinct, or disappeared, about 10,000 years ago in what is now the American state of North Dakota. The miners unearthed the tusk at the Freedom Mine near Beulah, North Dakota. The mine produces up to 14.5 metric tons of coal each year. We were very fortunate, lucky to find what we found, said David Straley. He is an executive of North American Coal, which owns the mine. After finding the tusk, the workers stopped digging in the area and called in experts. The experts estimated the tusk to be anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 years old. Jeff Person is a paleontologist with the North Dakota Geologic Survey. A paleontologist is an expert on ancient remains. Person was one of the experts that examined the tusk. He said it was miraculous that the tusk had not been more damaged, considering the large equipment that miners use at the site. Another dig at the discovery site found more bones. Experts found more than 20 bones. It is likely the most complete mammoth found in North Dakota, where it is more common to find one mammoth bone, tooth, or piece of a tusk. Person said it is not a lot of bones, 
compared to how many make up the animal's skeleton. But he said it's a lot more than we've ever found of one animal together. Mammoths once were found across parts of Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. Paul Ullman, a University of North Dakota paleontologist, said mammoth remains have been found throughout the United States and Canada. The discovery at the mine is somewhat rare in North Dakota and in the area. Many remains of the animals alive during the last ice age were destroyed by movements of ice sheets. Ullman said. Other areas have produced more mammoth remains, such as in Texas and South Dakota. People have even found frozen mammoth bodies in Canada and Russia. Ullman added. The tusk weighs more than twenty-two point six kilograms, and can break easily. Experts covered the tusk in plastic, in order to control how fast the tusk loses water. If it loses water too quickly, the bone could break apart. Person said. The experts covered the other bones in plastic and stored them. The bones will remain in plastic for at least several months until the scientists can get the water out safely. The paleontologists will identify what kind of mammoth the tusk came from later. Person said. The mining company plans to donate the bones to the state for educational purposes. Our goal is to give it to the kids. Straley said, "I'm Gregory Stockel." Last summer on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, Tina Taniguchi was working close to the ground. Her coconut leaf hat covered most of her thick brown hair. Wet soil had gotten on her clothes and her smiling face. Aniguchi smiles a lot while working on the Hanapepe salt patch, on the west side of Kauai. It is a piece of land about half a hectare in size, with pools of salty water. The salt becomes crystals as the water dries. It's hard work, but for me, it's also play. Taniguchi said with a laugh. Taniguchi's family. Is one of twenty-two families who make pakai, the Hawaiian word for salt, following a cultural and spiritual tradition. Hanapepe is one of the last remaining salt patches in Hawaii. Its holy salt can be traded or given away, but must never be sold. Hawaiians use it in cooking, healing rituals, and as protection. Taniguchi drives a car for about an hour to get to the salt patch. For her, it is like religion and play at the same time. It is the time when she makes a spiritual connection to the land. This would be a religious practice of mine for sure, Taniguchi said. 
my dad raised us, saying that these mountains are his church, and the ocean is where you get cleansed. Malia Nobrega Oliveira is another salt maker. She is also an educator and activist who leads efforts to preserve this old tradition. Her grandfather helped form the group of salt-making families called We Hana Pakai. The organization's goal, she said, is to communicate with the landowner, the state of Hawaii, whenever problems arise. Nobrega Oliveira said the salt patch is part of the lands taken away from Native Hawaiians after the U.S.-supported overthrow of Hawaii's monarchy in 1893. Regardless of what a piece of paper might say, we are stewards of the area, she said. Over the past 10 years, there have been several threats to this field. They include development, pollution from a neighboring airfield, damage to the sand from vehicle traffic, and waste left by visitors to the nearby beach. In addition, rising sea levels and weather might stop the practice. Nobrega Oliveira believes Western science and native knowledge can combine to combat the effects of climate change and save the salt patch. The steps she takes include building up the well's edges so water won't cover the salt beds. Another step is to prevent damage to the beach from vehicle traffic. Some ask us why we can't move this practice to a different location, she said. That's impossible because our cultural practice is particular to this land. There are elements here that make this place special for making this type of salt. You cannot find that anywhere else. The process of turning seawater into salt can be slow. The season begins once the rain stops, and water starts to disappear from the salt beds. Ocean water travels underground and enters the wells. Each family has their own well. As water enters the well, so do tiny red brine shrimp. These small ocean animals give Hanapepe salt its unusual sweet taste, said Nobrega Oliveira. The families first clean the salt beds and line them with black clay. Then they move water from the wells into the beds. There, salt crystals form. The top level, or layer, is the widest. It is used for table salt. The middle layer is pinkish and is used in cooking, while the bottom layer, which is a deep red color, is used in blessings and rituals. Fires on the island of Maui in August claimed 100 lives. After the fires, salt makers began sending their salt to survivors so they can make their food delicious and bring some of that joy into their lives. Nobrega Oliveira said. Interest in Hawaiian culture and language has recently grown on the islands, Nobrega Oliveira said. She now thinks about how to teach her knowledge to younger generations. 
One way she honors the Hanapepe salt patch is by writing Hawaiian songs and chants. She recently taught some school children one of those chants using the words Aloha Aina, which means love of the land. Aloha Aina captures our philosophy. The reason we do this, Nobrega Oliveira said, you take care of the land, and the land takes care of you. I'm Dan Friedel. And I'm Jill Robbins. Hello. This week on Ask a Teacher, we answer a question from an English learner named Sidra. Sidra asks, I want to know the difference between adverbs of frequency and degree and between participles and gerunds. Thank you for writing, Sidra. First, let's answer your question about adverbs. Different adverbs show different kinds of information. Adverbs of time tell us four things. When, how long, how often, and relationship in time. When something takes place. For example, I finished the project yesterday. How long something lasts or duration. The class seemed to last forever. Frequency, or how often something happens. Sometimes I skip breakfast. And the relationship of two things in time. He still has my laptop. Adverbs of degree answer the questions how much, many, or to what extent. For example, she's staying with us for a bit. We're fairly certain it's a good idea. Degree adverbs can also demonstrate intensity. Some show high intensity. These kinds of adverbs are known as amplifiers. The food was completely gone. Others show low intensity, called diminishers. I'm almost finished with the book. So, adverbs of frequency tell how often, and adverbs of degree tell how much or to what extent. Now, for the second question, the difference between participles and gerunds. We know that verbs can end in ing. Participles and gerunds are also words that end in ing. Let's look at the differences. When a verb ends in ing, it is the progressive or continuous aspect. That means the event is incomplete or temporary. We are listening to the podcast. She was studying at the library. Gerunds also have an ing ending, but they do not act like verbs. 
a gerund is a noun. This means it can be the subject or object of a sentence. For example, listening to music is my favorite hobby. She loves running. Participles have an ing ending too. They also do not act as verbs. A participle is an adjective. We usually use a participle when we are describing an experience that makes us feel certain emotions. For example, her answer was surprising. In this sentence, the participle surprising describes how you feel about her answer. Some other words that are often used as participles are amazing, boring, calming, exciting, and worrying. Please let us know if this explanation has helped you, Sidra. Do you have a question about American English? Send us an email at learningenglish at voanews.com. And that's Ask a Teacher. I'm Gina Bennett. Now, an American story. How the animals lost their tails and got them back, traveling from Philadelphia to Medicine Hat. It appeared in the book Rutabaga Stories by Carl Sandburg, published in 1922. Sandberg was a very famous American poet. He wrote Rutabaga stories for his three daughters, Margaret, Janet, and Helga. The stories make liberal use of repetition and nonsense language, a fun form of wordplay. Listen closely to the language of this story about talking animals with a big problem. Far up in North America, near the Saskatchewan River in Winnipeg Wheat Country, not far from the town of Moose Jaw, where nobody works unless they have to, and they nearly all have to, there is a place known as Medicine Hat. There, on top of a high tower, in a high chair, sits the head spotter of the weather makers. When the animals lost their tails, it was because the head spotter got careless. You see, the tails of the animals were hard and dry because of a stretch of hot, dusty weather. Then, at last, came a rain. It poured down on the animals' tails and softened them. But then a cold wind came and froze all the tails solid. A big wind followed and blew and blew and blew, until all the animals' tails flew off their bodies. It was easy for the hogs with their short tails, but it was not so easy for the blue fox, who uses his tail to run and to 
write secret letters in the snow. It was easy for the rabbit and her little white tail, but it was hard for the yellow flongboo, who lights up her home in the hollow tree with her bright tail. The animals decided to choose a committee of representatives, to represent them in Parleyhoo, to see what steps could be taken by talking to do something. There were sixty-six representatives on the committee. They decided to call it the Committee of Sixty-Six. For a chairperson, they picked the top flongboo. When there was a fight among the Flongboo families, she was the one who would say who was right and who was wrong. She was from Chappaquiddick, and lived there in a horse chestnut tree, between South Hadley and Northampton. After her nomination and election, she brought the Committee of Sixty-Six to order. It is no picnic to lose your tail, and we are here for business, she said, banging the gavel. Then a blue fox from Waco, Texas, stood up and said, Madam Chairwoman, do I have the floor? That is a way of saying, may I speak? I make a motion, said the blue fox. I move that this committee get on a train at Philadelphia, and ride on the train until it stops, and then take another train until we get to Medicine Hat, where the head spotter of the weathermakers sits. There we will ask if he will bring back our tails. The chairwoman said, All in favor of the motion will clean their right ears with their right paws. And all the blue foxes and yellow flongboos began cleaning their right ears with their right paws. All who oppose the motion will clean their left ears with their left paws, said the chairwoman. And all the blue foxes and yellow flongboos began cleaning their left ears with their left paws. The motion is carried both ways. It's a razzmatazz, said the chairwoman. Once again, all in favor of the motion will stand up on their toes. And all the blue foxes and all the yellow flongboos stood up. And now, said the chairwoman, all who are against the motion will stand on the top of their heads, stick their hind legs up in the air, and make a noise like woof-woof. No one opposed the motion. The motion is carried, said the chairwoman. So the committee went to Philadelphia to get the train to Medicine Hat. The chairwoman asked a policeman there, Would you be so kind as to tell us the way to the Union Depot? It pays to be polite, said the policeman. 
May I ask you again if you would kindly direct us to the Union Depot where the train is? asked the Flongbu again. Polite persons and angry persons are different kinds, said the policeman. The Flongbu's eyes changed their light, and a slow fire burned from where her tail used to be. She said, Sir, I must inform you that we are the Committee of Sixty-Six. We are distinguished representatives from places you do not know. This committee is going to ride to Medicine Hat with a special message and a secret errand for the head spotter of the weathermakers. I am a polite friend of all respectable people, said the policeman, touching the star on his chest. This is the first time ever in the history of the United States that a committee of sixty-six has ever visited a city in the United States, said the Flongbu. I beg to be mistaken, finished the policeman. The Union Depot is under that clock, and he pointed to a big clock nearby. Over to Union Depot train station they went, all sixty-six, half foxes, half flongboos. They are speaking in some strange language from where they come from, said one passenger. They have secrets to keep among each other and never tell us, said another passenger. We will find out all about it in the newspapers tomorrow, said a third passenger. Then the foxes and flongboos climbed into a special car. The train left the station. It came to the horseshoe curve near Altoona, where the tracks bend in a half-circle. Then it went on toward Ohio. Two baby blue foxes, the youngest on the committee, sat at the front of the car. Crossing Ohio and Indiana at night, the flongboos took off the top of the car. The conductor told them, I must have an explanation. It is between us and the stars, they told him. The train ran on to Chicago. There were pictures in the newspapers that afternoon showing foxes and flongboos eating pink ice cream with iron axes. Each blue fox and yellow flongboo got their own newspaper. Crossing to the north, the sky began to fill with the snow ghosts of Minnesota. Again, the foxes and flongboos lifted the top off the car so they would not miss the show. Some went to sleep, but the two baby blue foxes stayed up watching the snow ghosts and telling snow ghost stories to each other. Early in the night, the first baby blue fox said to the second, 
Who are the snow ghosts the ghosts of? The second baby blue fox answered, Snowmen, snow foxes, and snow fishes. Everybody has a snow ghost. And that was only the beginning of their talk. They would talk until morning about where the snow ghosts go on Christmas morning and how the snow ghosts watch the new year. Somewhere between Winnipeg and Moose Jaw, they stopped the train and all ran out in the snow. The white moon was shining down a valley of birch trees. At last they came to Medicine Hat, near the Saskatchewan River in Winnipeg wheat country, not far from the town of Moose Jaw, where nobody works unless they have to, and they nearly all have to. There they ran to the place where the head spotter of the weathermakers sits, in a high chair, on a high tower, watching the weather. Let loose another big wind to blow back our tails. Let loose a big freeze to freeze our tails back on. And let us get back our lost tails, they said to the head spotter. Which was just what he did, giving them exactly what they wanted. So they all went back home satisfied. That's all the time we have for today's show, but join us again tomorrow for another VOA Learning English program. Thanks for listening. I'm Katie Weaver. And I'm Dan Friedel. 